Richard Nixon. Well, I'm not a crook. Ronald Reagan. Tear down this wall. George W. Bush. I can hear you. The rest of the world hears you. And Donald Trump. Nobody knows the game better than I do. All of these presidents relied on one man to secure their seat in the Oval Office. That man is Roger Stone. This is The Roger Stone Show on 77 WABC. You know, very recently, uh, a major, very well-known actor contacted me and said he was a supporter, a fan, supporter of Donald Trump, and he really wanted to have dinner. So uh, he flew to where he wa- where I was, but on the way here, he said, can we go someplace quiet where we won't be seen? I said, sure. Uh, And he said, you know, I I really love you. I really love Donald Trump. I really support the America First movement. But despite my many credits on both movies and television, if that became known, I would literally never work again. Our guest today is not that man. John Rich is a singer, songwriter, entrepreneur, family man, who stands up for God and country and family, and he makes no bones about it. He has been outspoken on virtually every major important socioeconomic and cultural issue in the country where we are fighting the woke leftist agenda. Now, it would be very unfair uh, and unreasonable for me to interview a country and western superstar of this magnitude without playing a little bit of his music and we're going to do that right now i just want to run i just want to run away with you and live wide open set them on fire crazy like we used to do it don't matter where we're going up on a mountain down by the big side till we find the love that we fell in That's what she said in the back of my truck bed as I was getting buzzed on suds out on some backcountry road. We were flying high, fine as wine, having ourselves a big and rich time. And I was going just about as far as she'd let me go. But her evaluation of my cowboy reputation had me begging for salvation all night long. So I took her out gigging frogs, introduced her to my old bird dog and sang her every Willie Nelson song I can think of, and we made love. And I saddle up my horse, and I ride into the city. I make a lot of noise, cause the girls, they are so pretty. 
John Rich, I want to welcome you to the Roger Stone Show here on WABC Radio. Folks, uh, you can listen to us uh, and this entire interview on WABCRadio.com. Uh, or if you're in the New York, New Jersey, Connecticut area, you can find us at 770 on the AM dial. But right now, call a friend or a family member and tell them to tune in because you're not going to want to miss this. John Rich, welcome to the Roger Stone Show. I appreciate that, Roger. Thanks for the opportunity and uh, looking forward to our conversation. It's amazing how many big people in entertainment, both music, uh, film, TV, in their hearts, they agree with you and I, but they hide their light under a bushel. In other words, they're afraid to speak out. What I admire about you is that that that's not how you are. You understand that while there may be some downside to your career, although you seem to be doing amazingly well, uh, you stand for God, family, and country, and you really don't care who's upset about it. I admire that. Well, I appreciate that. You know, I spent my whole life, uh, my whole adult life, angling and working really hard in the country music industry uh, a little background on me i grew up in a little town called amarillo texas up in the top of texas in the panhandle uh, we lived in a double wide trailer nothing fancy uh, my dad uh, has been a, a prison preacher for many many years priest in small churches or prison ministries things like that so you know we didn't go without food or anything like that but it was it was pretty lean um, and I think when you grow up like that and you get down the road and you really start working hard at something big, like in my case, the country music world, trying to do it, man, you go after it with everything you've got because we have this thing called the right to pursue happiness. I always remind people it doesn't say you have the right to be happy. It says you have the right to pursue happiness, and uh, there's a big difference in those two things, and so I, I've always been a pursuer of happiness i wanted to take advantage of of my inalienable rights uh granted to me by god the creator not by the government and just see what i'm capable of doing even though i'm a high school graduate and nothing fancy going on with my pedigree hey get out of my way i'm an american let's see what i can do so with that attitude i took on the music industry and over those decades uh i was uh, songwriter of the year with ascap for three years in a row I still don't think that's ever been duplicated. We sold millions and millions of records. I produced all kinds of other artists uh, that went multi-platinum. Gretchen Wilson, uh, to be one, she sold 8 million records. And so you've got all this success going. You finally got there. It took a long time to do it. And then what starts to happen? Well, the music industry, little by little, starts to be taken over by uh, ideology that is anti-American, anti-freedom of speech, anti-family, and those people who are running those record labels that I was on would sit me down and say, now, John, stop talking about this subject. John, don't take that interview. John, don't go on that network. It's going to hurt your career. It's going to hurt your career. And for a few years, Roger, I'll be honest, I looked at that and went, well, man, that's, that's terrible. Because if I go do these interviews, if I go talk about these subjects, all this time, my whole life, I've been working to get to this point, and I'm going to lose it. 
over that, over over saying what's on my mind and what's on my heart. So for several years, I did not say those things. I stayed out of the way, which is what you were just talking about, how the majority of artists do it. But at this one point, Roger, I'm watching my two sons, uh, Cash, named after Johnny Cash, and Colt, named after Sam Colt, Cash and Colt. And they were about seven and nine at the time. And I find myself probably like a lot of Americans watching the news, talking to a television set, like, can you believe what these people are doing? You know, we're yelling at the TV, but then I'm walking out the door and putting my boots on and I'm going and playing patty cake on the red carpet with the same people I was just yelling at on television. And I realized, okay, that's called being a hypocrite. That's being a hypocrite. That is saying to yourself that, the approval of the music industry is more important to me than my freedom of speech or my integrity in front of my own kids. And when I finally realized that's what I was doing, I made the conscious decision of, you know what? I'm going to be an American first. I'm going to be a dad first. I'm the blueprint for my two boys as they grow up and they get out in the world. They're going to think back and go, well, how did dad handle it? When, it, when things went off the tracks, what did he do? Did he roll over or did dad stand, stand up and not be moved? Which one did he do? And so they now have that blueprint watching their dad. I will tell you, yes, I've lost the music industry. I've lost country radio. I mean, they won't touch me with a 10-foot pole. But I have adopted the attitude of, you know what, Roger, if those people thought well of me, I wouldn't be able to sleep at night. Their their hatred for what I stand for is validation that I say it correctly. And so that's been my modus operandi now for probably the last five or six years, and I would not trade where I'm at today for anything in the world. Well, you and I have something in common. Uh, I uh, put myself through college playing the bass guitar, mostly just playing covers. Uh, when I was targeted in the Muller witch hunt, uh, and my wife and I essentially lost everything, I had to sell my prized Fender Precision bass to mm. raise money to pay my lawyers. You can imagine how happy I was when an evangelical pastor from uh, Tennessee uh, heard about this on the radio and sent me a beautiful jazz uh, Fender jazz bass. And I don't have an amplifier, but I still, uh, Sunday afternoons when I just want to think, just uh, sitting around with the bass guitars. It's very, very therapeutic. Uh, well, I know a guy in Nashville that could probably send you an amp, Roger. I bet we could hook you up. <laughs> All right. My neighbors would love that, that I guarantee it. You know, John, you have become increasingly concerned with the blatant disregard for parents' fundamental rights and their authority in the education and protection of their children. I know it's a grave concern to you and to many across the country that what we see is a deliberate attempt to groom our children through sexual content being promoted not only in the classrooms but in video games, uh, 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 in the media, uh, under the guise of education. I know you gave a speech in Tennessee to the legislature back in 2021 that really uh, is reflected in a new law that they have just passed in Texas that deals with pornography in the schools. This is a, a massive win. Tell us about that. So I was made aware uh, of the filth that was in all the public schools two or three years ago, in elementary schools even. And now, of course, we're all aware of it. We've all 
seen these pictures and, and read these narratives in these books, and we can't even believe that's allowed to be in a school. And so as I was getting up to speed with that back in 21, um, I thought to myself, well, this has to be illegal. I mean, if, if an adult was sitting in a city park uh, and had a bunch of little kids sitting there and was showing them pornographic pictures and reading pornographic stories, what would happen to that adult? Well, they, they would be handcuffed, dragged off to jail, uh, probably put on the child predator list. I mean, they would have a serious problem on their hand. But they're able to do it inside the walls of a school because they, they term it as, quote, education. So I thought, yeah, that does not sound right. So I sat down on my own, and I just started researching and looking up court cases and trying to find if this had ever been prosecuted before. And sure enough, uh, we have a federal statute. It's in Section 2422 of the United States Criminal Code. It's called a Federal Enticement Statute. And it targets the sexual grooming of minors. The, the statute's focus is on the intended effect on the minor rather than the defendant's intent to in, actually engage in sex, meaning just the intended effect of it. And they refer to it as grooming, by the way. That is, that is a federal law right now on the books in the United States. So if you want to look at it from that perspective, federal law is being broken all over the United States. The Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals said that child sexual abuse can be accomplished by several means and is often carried out through a period of grooming. That is their word. They always think that the right came up with this grooming word. No, that's in the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals said that. They recognize that a grooming refers to deliberate actions taken by a defendant to expose a child to sexual material and that the ultimate goal of the grooming is to reduce the child's inhibitions. That is, that is set law. That is precedent in the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals. So I ran across that, and I started building this speech. I took that case, and I also took the FCC's standards. So Federal Communication Commission, they run television and radio. The radio station we're talking on right now uh, is overseen by the FCC. And the FCC says, uh, if I took one of those books that we're talking about in these schools right now and I read that book on the radio, if I read it on Roger Stone's show right now, the FCC would kick us off the air. They would find the station, no telling what they'd do. If I took the same book and showed those pictures on, on, a, on a television network, on a mainstream television network, the same thing would happen. So I put all that into this speech that I gave to the Tennessee legislature. I had five minutes on the clock. I gave it to them. It sparked a bill to be written. Uh, 1944 was the number of the bill in Tennessee. I thought we were going to get it passed, uh, but the governor of Tennessee, who is proving to be more disappointing by the day right now, Bill Lee, between him and a bunch of the rhinos uh, in the Tennessee legislature, they tabled the bill, and it never got passed. Well, I thought, well, I lost. That's it. I got beat. I mean, how are you going to beat the system? I mean, I hit them as hard as I could with the facts, and, and man, I got, I got beat. But, but that was not the end of the story. A group called Moms for America, and I would, I would suggest every mother listening right now, go check out Moms for America and become a member of that group, 600,000 of them now across the U.S. Moms for America reached out to me, and they said, hey, we heard about the speech in Tennessee. Do you have the transcript? I said, yeah. So I sent them the transcript. They took that. 
and took it to the attorney general of Texas and said, look at this speech that John gave in Tennessee. They didn't pass it, but look what he pointed out here. And the AG in Texas got with his team and said the FCC standard, that's exactly right. If you can't read it on a radio station or show the pictures on the television set, then why, is, why are the kids being exposed to it in a school? What's well, hard to argue with that? And so they put that whole thing together, and yes, uh, it just became law in Texas, and I'm told it's now passed the House and Senate of Louisiana and is sitting on the governor's desk in Louisiana. So my hope is that it comes back to Tennessee, but even bigger than that, I hope this proliferates throughout the U.S. and we see versions of this law passed in every single state. Uh, well, as folks, as you can see, John Rich is out there making a difference. If you're just tuning in, this is The Roger Stone Show here on WABC Radio. You can find us at 770 on the AM dial, or you can listen to this great interview and all of our programming at WABCradio.com. Uh, let's go back to Bill Lee, because I agree with you. Governor Bill Lee, uh, Republican of Tennessee, rhino of Tennessee, ran for governor as an outsider businessman, but has immediately been swallowed up by the local swamp. He's been trying to pass a red flag law in your state. You've been an outspoken advocate for the Second Amendment. Uh, but in the wake of the Covenant school shooting, you know, the left never has a tragedy. They never let a tragedy go uh, unused in their efforts. I know you have launched uh, a campaign against uh, Governor Lee's efforts to put in place these red flag laws that would unconstitutionally deny the gun rights to individual citizens if somebody in the government just didn't like your political attitudes. Uh, you're calling your campaign red flag down, uh, and I know you're out there working very hard to alert Tennesseans as to what's going on in your state capitol. Yeah, so uh, the governor of Tennessee, Governor Lee, uh, we actually have Republicans uh, recorded that they didn't know they were being recorded discussing how to, quote, rebrand a red flag law. Call it something else because if it's a, if it's a red flag law, it'll never get passed. In Tennessee, we have to rebrand this into something else. <laughs> I ran across that, and I, I hit up a couple of guys that said that, uh, big politicians in Tennessee, and I, I said, how do you intend on rebranding this so a guy like me will swallow it? This called them out, and, of course, they immediately retreat. They start backing up. No, 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 you, you misunderstood. And I said, oh, I don't think I did misunderstand. So what they're doing is uh, is they're holding summer sessions. The governor is calling in three and four representatives at a time during the summer when nobody's paying attention and trying to strong arm them into voting for this. So for people that haven't dug down into red flag laws very deeply, basically what that says is let's say a, let's say a, a husband and a wife or a boyfriend and a girlfriend or whatever or your next door neighbor, somebody gets upset at somebody else. And they call in to the police a red flag on the person they're upset at and say, hey, this person's acting mentally unstable. They're acting, uh, they're acting out. They're acting with violent attitude. And they own firearms. I'm calling in a red flag law, calling in the red flag. The police and the authorities can then go without due process, and they can seize that person's weapons, force them uh, into a mental evaluation 
and then the government decides whether they can have their weapons back or not. That is what is being proposed in the state of Tennessee. If Tennessee adopts that law, they will be one of only two red states at that point to have a red flag law. Would you like to know what the only state in the U.S. that's a conservative state with a red flag law is? Uh, the I think state I of know. Florida. Yeah, we, we know state that. state of Florida. Signed into, yeah. law, signed into law by a Republican governor. Uh, by the way, yeah, Rick Scott. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, by the way, Governor Bill Lee is one of the seven Republican governors that Governor Ron DeSantis has promised the vice presidency to, by the way. Mm. Uh, OK, so, uh, look, I love the fact that uh, you named one of your sons after the great Johnny Cash. Uh, and I have to ask you, because I got a chance to listen to a lot of your music in preparation for this interview. Uh, and man, you really rock. Uh, who are your musical influences? In other words, uh, who has who has helped shape your sound, your style? When John Rich decides to relax and listen to music, who does he listen to? Man, I am I am all over the map with that. I, I will tell you some of my favorites to listen to. Uh, I, I'm a huge fan of the Rat Pack era. I love Sinatra. Uh, love Dean Martin. Love all that era of music. Uh, but then I also go deep into, like, the bluegrass world. So the, the Bill Monroe's, the Ralph Stanley and the Clinch Mountain Boys, Ricky Skaggs, those kind of guys. But then you keep coming around the circle. You know, it's a big circle of music. Uh, Johnny Cash, to me, was probably, I'm going to say was, the greatest songwriter that there ever was. And I think that because he, he conveyed more information with fewer words than anybody that ever put a pen to paper, in my opinion. Every word he said was just another hammer. Uh, so I, I, I've loved Johnny Cash. Um, you know, in the rock and roll world, man, Tom Petty, and you, you go back into some of the old, if you listen to Save a Horse, Ride a Cowboy, one of our biggest songs, think about ACDC with a banjo and a fiddle. <laughs> that's, what, that's what Save a Horse, Ride a Cowboy sounds like. So I'm a mashup of all those things. I've just I always enjoyed music that had authenticity to it. I think one of the things I don't like about modern music to a large extent is it seems very redundant. Uh, I, I tell people it sounds like they went to the school of redundancy school. That's what it sounds like to me. I love uniqueness. Uh, I love artists that, that just cut their own path. Merle Haggard, you go into Merle and Willie and uh, Loretta Lynn and some of those people. Uh, just they can't be duplicated. And, you know, I strive to be that kind of an artist. Uh, I've always uh, loved Johnny Cash, uh, Hank Williams Sr. and Jr., Lester Flatt and Earl Scruggs. Oh, yeah. You can't get better bluegrass than that. Patsy Cline, of course. I like old country, I guess. Uh, and then I agree with you, Sinatra. Uh, just listening to Sinatra's phrasing is unbelievable. Everybody knows I'm also a giant fan of the world's greatest entertainer, Al Jolson. It's a different era, but uh, yeah. he was the biggest star of all time. The first guy who did a, a talking picture, the first guy to take a Broadway show outside of New York, uh, a hit on radio, uh, really a, a superstar. He was Elvis before Elvis was Elvis. And of course, who doesn't love Elvis? Uh, there is a new movie coming out that uh, I've been reading about. I know you have too. Sound of Freedom. Uh, it stars uh, uh, my good friend uh, Jim Caviezel, who's a really stout Christian patriot, another one who doesn't really care what the impact of his career is 
from his speaking the truth. I'm, I'm very excited about this, and I hope people will go out and see it. Yeah, I actually got to see the movie uh, three nights ago in Nashville. So uh, Jim Caviezel was in town. Tim Ballard was in town. The Angel Studios guys were in town. Uh, they, they had hit me up a, a couple of weeks earlier and said, hey, we'd love to have a screening in Nashville. Can you help us get the word out? I said, absolutely. So we got the word out. We thought it would be one theater full of people. It wound up being three theaters full of people. I mean, just packed. Uh, everybody wanting to see this film. And I got to tell you, when that film is, when it's over, you walk out of the theater changed. I mean, the, the glimpse into the absolute horrific nature of what's going on to, with these kids uh, out there in the world, when you see it in that kind of a format, and of course, we're getting the sanitized version of it. But even so, you think about your own kids and think about what's going on out there every single day and every single zip code throughout our country and around the world. It it makes you so angry and sick to your stomach that you are you're hell bent to do something about it. So anybody that's out there, mom or dad, and I would say anybody above 16 years old, um, go get tickets to this. Uh, Angel.com has it. Soundoffreedom.com has it. Go get tickets, and we. this movie needs to be seen by everybody. You know, Jim, I'm, I'm sure he told you this, Roger, but, uh, you know, Jim Caviezel said there was roadblock after roadblock in front of this movie getting it funded and then getting theaters to agree to, to allow it to come in. I said, well, you know why that is? And he goes, well, why do you think it is? I said, because the, the Hollywood uh, entertainment industry is complicit with a lot of the stuff you're talking about. Not everybody in Hollywood, but a lot of them, a lot of them are involved in things that are terrible, and they don't want a movie like this to be seen because it exposes who all is involved and what's going on. It makes people wake up and open their eyes and ears. And let me tell you something. This movie, I think, is probably the most important movie maybe to ever come out, maybe to ever come out, especially at this moment in time in American history. Folks, if you are just joining us, this is the Roger Stone Show. You are on WABC Radio, and I'm interviewing multi-platinum country and western hit generator, singer, songwriter, performer, patriot, activist, John Rich, uh, and happy to have him here on this pre-4th of July weekend. John, uh, you are also an entrepreneur. I admire that. Uh, your new project redneck riviera is a nationwide brand of whiskey i've often thought wistfully about producing stone cold vodka but that's for <laughs> another day uh i now know i note uh, reading about this you're now in eleven thousand stores across the country uh but you're not putting this money in your pocket you have generated 1.6 million dollars to the folds of honor uh charity which puts kids through college who lost a parent in combat. Tell us about Redneck Riviera. So Redneck Riviera, it's a phrase that's been around since the early 60s. It's, it's what people would call the Gulf Coast back in the day. They still call it that. The joke is you can't afford to go to the French Riviera, so where are we going to go? We're going to go to the Redneck Riviera. We're going to go to the Blue Collar Beach. And so I, I actually trademarked that phrase uh, back in 2008, I started building this brand out. We have a state-of-the-art honky-tonk downtown in Nashville. 
on Broadway called the Redneck Riviera. And then, yes, it's a whiskey brand. 11,000 stores all over the U.S. RedneckRiviera.com has a store locator where you put in your zip code, and you'll fi- I promise you, you'll find a store very close to where you live. So, and you're incorrect on one thing. It's not that I don't keep any of the money. That $1.6 million is the tithe. So that's the money that we kick back on every single bottle that we sell. You know, it's a, it's, a, it's a business. You know, I have 115 employees, and we have to make money. We have to generate and keep building. But the 1.6, that's the money that, that Redneck Riviera as a brand has generated. It's for kids who lost a parent in combat or who have a parent who's 100% disabled. To me, I could not think of a stronger way to say thank you for your service than to look after somebody's kid. As a dad myself, if you said, John, what can I ever do if something happens to you? I'd say, make sure my kids are all right. That's the first thing any parent would say. So we give back to Folds of Honor for that exact reason. And it's pretty awesome to think that there's young people going to college right now all around the U.S. whose scholarships are being subsidized through sales of my brand, Redneck Riviera. I'm I'm very proud of that. Uh, And I think that's one reason why the brand continues to do so well. It's American glass, American corks, American labels, and uh, it was my it was my take. I was always a Crown Royal guy, uh, Canadian blended whiskey, you know. And I said, "There's got to be an American blended whiskey. I don't need to be drinking Canada stuff." And so I came with Redneck Riviera American blended whiskey, and I've been very blessed, man. It's doing very, very well. Well, I stand corrected. I have scoured the Bible. You know, Jesus Christ uh, never was against capitalism or entrepreneurship or hard work. So uh, God bless you. Uh, Yes, you are entitled to make money. That's what America is about. That's the America we want to leave our kids, where they still have an opportunity to make it, where any American can make it. uh, And you have stood tall for that. I noticed that you were not even a little bit reticent to jump into the Bud Light controversy, why anybody would want to take one of the most popular beers in the country, by the way, I don't care for it, it's a little thin for me, uh, and, and totally tank their brand in attempt to appeal to a, a market which is minuscule compare, compared to the red-blooded American males who heretofore loved Bud Light. I saw Garth Brooks out there, whose music I don't appreciate. Uh, he was uh, he was vocal on this as well. But t- what's your take on this? Well, so I own a bar, a Redneck Riviera downtown in Nashville, and we sell a tremendous amount of beer down there. There's a lot of people coming to Nashville. And since the day we opened in 2018 until this controversy hit, the number one beer by far at Redneck Riviera was guess what? Bud Light. Number two wasn't even close. I mean, it was the lead horse. Well, when all this happened, uh, I get a call from my general manager down there, and he says, he goes, with what's going on with Bud Light? What do you want us to do with it? I said, don't do anything with it. Tell me if people are still buying it. Give it a week or two and tell me if people are still buying it and let the customers decide what they want to do. He goes, okay. Well, man, it wasn't seven or eight days later. He called me back and he said, you won't believe it, but we've sold a total of zero Bud Lights. He said, and worse than that, people are coming in and seeing that we still have Bud Light, and they're turning around and walking out. What do you want me to do? I said, man, if if nobody's going to buy it, we gotta we got to put something else in there that they will buy. So we called the distributor, 
and they came first time I've ever seen a, a beer truck take beer out of a bar. I don't think that's ever happened before, but they picked up 118 cases of Bud Light and eight kegs of Bud Light that were untapped because we could not, you couldn't give it away. So why would they make a move like that? I honestly think the real story of that is that the majority of the people that work for Bud Light that really have been there a long time, I believe there's a lot of great people that work at that company. But when you let people into your company that are radicalized wokest, like the lady that they gave that position to, then all bets are off at that point. You cannot allow that because they're in there for one reason and one reason alone, and that is to get their ideology plastered all over this brand. That, that lady did not care about selling more beer. She cared about her ideology getting out there. And so consequentially, uh, consequently the, all these people have now lost their livelihoods. Distributors that distribute that beer – uh, people that work for the company, thousands of them, have lost their jobs, lost their businesses. Uh, they're getting absolutely killed. But at the end of the day, that's not cancel culture. Cancel culture is when somebody more powerful than you up the food chain tells you, shuts you off, turns your microphone off, turns your channel off. When the people respond, when everyday people stop spending their 15 or $20 on beer and they do it in mass, that that's the real cancel i mean that's that's the customer is king concept and that's what they hit and it, it's it is an unbelievable thing to watch unfold i don't believe in cancel culture i'm not going to cancel bud light i don't want somebody canceling me but buddy when the customers speak and they make their decision that is a final judgment uh, I saw you say uh, on Fox News that the cancel culture effort in America is nothing less than an effort to dismantle our country piece by piece. I really agree with that. Uh, you had a an anti-woke, a non-woke hit song that hit number one on iTunes. Tell us about that. <laughs> yeah, it's called Progress. Uh, it was number one for eight days, actually all genres, not just country. It was it was the number one most downloaded song of any genre, anywhere. And the, the line in the song says, Stick your progress where the sun don't shine. Keep your big mess away from me and mine. If you leave us alone, well, we'd all be just fine. So stick your progress where the sun don't shine. So, you know, that's the nicest possible country way of saying, you know what, <laughs> you know. And I think uh, people heard that song and went, that is exactly how I feel. You know, progress. I guess it's, I guess it's relative to what you consider is progress. I mean, there's the destruction of our country. Uh, what we see going on coast to coast, up one side and down the other. There's a there's a faction of people in America running this show right now that they do consider that progress. The word progress itself, if you look it up in the in the dictionary, it says to move towards a goal, to move towards an end. So what are they moving towards? What are they progressing toward? If this is what they call progress, well, it looks like to me they're, they're progressing toward the the annihilation of, of the American dream and of the future of our country as it as it was founded. They want a different America. They want America to be on, on a level, if not lower playing field than a bunch of other nations. They want globalism. They want, they want America just to be another one of the countries. No more America is the leader. 
No, no, those days are over. We got to bring America down to its knees. That's their version of progress. And guess what? In that, in those terms, it is progress to them. But to me, and I think to most Americans, I saw 80% of Americans think we're on the wrong track. Well, that's a good poll to see. I'm glad we're agreeing on that. We look at progress of leave me alone, let me work, let me raise my family, let me let me go out and gamble my time, my money, my future. Let me go exhaust my potential. Let me pursue happiness. That's progress. Just get out of my way, and the chips will fall where they're going to fall based on my own decisions and my own work ethic. That's real progress to me. Well, John, I have been a big fan of your work in Big and Rich. Uh, and then it occurred to me that you could team up with Robin Thick and call yourselves Thick and Rich. But then I looked <laughs> it up and found out that, that he's a woke leftist, so you can cancel that <laughs> idea right now. Uh, I, I know that you are uh, in Maine taking some time off on this uh, pre-4th of July weekend. I want you to know how much I really appreciate uh, you're joining us today. Uh, if you had a message for all Americans on this pre-4th of July weekend, what, what would it be? This is a time of choosing. There is no fence riding allowed anymore. Uh, remember who founded the country. If you go look at the Declaration of Independence and you look at those signatures, they weren't just signing the Declaration of Independence. They were signing their own death warrants. If the British Empire caught anybody who signed that document, they were going to hang them from the trees in their own front yard, burn their house to the ground, imprison their family, and erase them from history. That is what they were actually risking. Liberty or death was not a hashtag, a website, or a bumper sticker. Liberty or death was the attitude it took to found the country. We, they are the shoulders that we have all been standing on all this time, and now we are going to be the shoulders that the next centuries stand upon in this country. This is the time you step forward. This is the time you, if, they, if they come at you, they call you a bad name, and they, they try to run you down, good. That's exactly the outcome you're looking for. That will validate that you st stood up and said the right thing at the right moment. Stand up and be counted. That would be my message to America. All right. Uh, country and Western superstar, American patriot, father, husband, outspoken advocate for freedom in the U.S. Constitution, John Rich. We're grateful to you for being on the show today. I'm grateful to my good friend, General Michael Flynn, for suggesting that I reach out to you. Also want to help uh, thank my good friend, Clayton Q, up and coming country and Western uh, artist for helping facilitate this great interview. John, God bless you and Godspeed. God bless you. Thank you, Roger. Uh, this is the Roger Stone Show here on WABC Radio. Uh, coming up, uh, woke bureaucrats in New York City are waging a war on pizza. First they came for our kids, now they're coming for our pizza. Under proposed regulations, pizza ovens in New York City that are filed, fired by either coal or wood would be shut down. This means that some of the most famous pizza emporiums in New York City, like John's of Bleecker Street or Tantano's, would be forced to shutter. I say 
give me pizza or give me death. We're going to talk about the war on pizza uh, coming up. I also want to tell you that Trump lawyer Alina Haba, one of the most articulate and effective attorneys representing Donald Trump, is going to join us shortly on The Roger Stone Show. So don't go away. Richard Nixon. Well, I'm not a crook. Ronald Reagan. Tear down this wall. George W. Bush. I can hear you. The rest of the world hears you. And Donald Trump. Nobody knows the game better than I do. All of these presidents relied on one man to secure their seat in the Oval Office. That man is Roger Stone. This is The Roger Stone Show on 77 WABC. This is The Roger Stone Show, and you're on WABC Radio, where we're making AM radio great again. Let me strongly recommend to you that you not only download the uh, access to the WABCradio.com app, but you go to the entire app for WABC Radio, because we have a lineup that is second to none, whether it is Larry Kudlow, the man who quarterbacked Donald Trump's revival of the American economy, or Frank Morano, who is a night owl with his show, The Other Side of Midnight, the great Sid Rosenberg. I'm going to join him this Wednesday morning, uh, next Wednesday morning, for his show, the queen of gossip, Cindy Adams, Mayor Rudy Giuliani, America's mayor, and and the table setter, folks. You don't want to miss the Cats Roundtable every day at 5 recapping the most important stories in the country, 8 o'clock on Sunday mornings. It is a must-listen. So go download the WABC 77 app. makes it so much easier. Uh, Unless you have been living under a rock, you know that uh, woke bureaucrats in the administration of Mayor Eric Adams have proposed banning pizza ovens that utilize either coal or wood as fuel. Now, I grew up in Connecticut, right outside New York City, uh, so I admit that I have a preference for uh, a certain New Haven, Connecticut style of pizza, personified by Frank Pepe's, Sally's, uh, The Spot, all located originally on Worcester Street uh, in uh, Connecticut. This is the home of the white clam pie, very hard to find any place else. Uh, so my fear is that not only are they going to ruin New York as the mecca of great pizza, but this woke ideology is going to drift over to Connecticut and destroy some of those landmark institutions. Pizza is kind of like sex, even when it's bad, still pretty good. You can find that in my rule book, Stone's Rules. Lawmakers, prominent social media personalities, celebrities, and most important, the American people are rallying against this proposed New York City rule that would crack down on the city's most beloved pizzas and cost a lot of dough. Pizza operators argue that the cost of abiding by the new rules would be astronomical and to make matters worse, that New York City pizzas would literally never be the same. New York City is famously and deservedly known for its pizza. Is the city really trying to mess with that reputation? I mean, New York City and pizza are two peas in a pod. 
Thanks to the city's rich history with immigration and Italian immigrants, the city has the oldest pizzeria in the country as well as what we argue is the best pizza you can find anywhere in the nation. Yeah, I'm talking to you, Chicago. I was actually doing an interview uh, on another station several years ago. I was late to get there. I asked my good friend Frank Morano, who was hosting the show, to run out and get me a couple slices. Lo and behold, he returns to the station with a couple slices of deep dish Chicago pizza. It was a problem, folks. It's mostly bread. So Frank Deep Morano, there was actually a warrant out for him in Staten Island when this became known. He couldn't return to his home borough for several months until the controversy died down. The truth is, he's given me some of the best advice when it comes to pizza. If you're out in Staten Island, you want to go to Danino's without any question. Uh, That's uh, uh, the one he recommends most highly. Uh, But there are others uh, in the borough uh, that we definitely will talk about through the duration of the show. Lee's Tavern. Uh, one of the only other places outside New Haven, by the way, where you can get a great clam pie. Joe and Pat's, where Frank recommends the tri-pie, three sauces, pesto, vodka, marinara. Now, if you've got kind of a more gourmet uh, palate, there's Pizzeria uh, Jove, uh, where they do the doughs by La Castri. It's a little unusual, but I think you might like it. Uh, in any way you slice it, Staten Island remains today uh, a bastion of great pizza. But will that be true when Eric Adams and his bureaucrats have their way? New York City and pizza are two peas in a pod, thanks to the city's rich history of Italian immigrants, as we have said. As the saying goes, pizza was invented in Italy, but perfected in New York City. Besides pizza being woven into the fabric of the city's history, New York City and Brooklyn make some of the best pizza in the world. That's because they have two secret weapons. Our city's famous water is a secret ingredient for any bread-related product, but specifically pizza, and the style of ovens used to cook the pizza from coal ovens, wood fire, deck ovens, well, that just names a few. Iconic pizza joints facing the heat from the Adams administration include Lombardi's in Little Italy, literally the oldest pizzeria in America, Arturo's in Soho, one of my all-time favorites, John's of Bleecker Street. During a blizzard one time when I was uh, living on Central Park South, I had a craving for uh, for John's of Bleecker Street. There was not a cab out. The, the streets were deserted. The snow was three and four feet high and I had no boots. I put plastic bags on my feet, secured them with rubber bands, and I walked all the way to the village just so I could have a John's of Bleecker pizza. No pizza ever tasted that good. Then, of course, there's Grimaldi's in Dumbo. Uh, That's uh, not owned by the original owner of Grimaldi's. Uh, Grimaldi himself has been gone for a long time. Some people complain about that the ingredients have suffered, but I noticed that Governor Ron DeSantis was there recently. Well, a Fugazi governor there for a Fugazi pizza. Uh, You got a lot of little mom-and-pop pizza institutions in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn, Staten Island, all over that pride themselves on their pies 
baked white coal and wood-fired ovens. Hundreds, if not thousands, of restaurants and jobs would be impacted. One pizza restaurateur who actually requested anonymity said that the uh, that there are very, very sensitive negotiations currently taking place uh, with Adams DEP officials on whether to grandfather in or maybe even exempt dozens of coal and wood oven-fired pizza joints from this new draconian authoritarian mandate. This is an unfunded mandate, and it's going to cost these pizza purveyors a fortune, not to mention ruining the taste of pizza totally and destroying the character of New York pizza. If you screw around with the temperature in the oven, you change the taste. The pipe, the chimney, it's that size to create a perfect updraft. It keeps the temperature perfect. It's an art as much as, much as a science. You take away the char, the thing that makes pizza taste great, you kill it. And for what? You really think you're changing the environment with a couple hundred, eight or nine hundred pizza ovens? Probably far less. Politicians and bureaucrats should stop messing with our crust. It's not just restaurateurs weighing in. Customers are getting crusty after discovering this new proposal. They recently told city officials not to tamper with their slice. One Brooklynite financier who brought her parents visiting from India for their very first slice of pizza said, I'm all for responsible environmental practices, but tell Al Gore, who is the guy who told us we'd already be underwater because of climate change, to take one less private jet or I leave our pizza alone. Al Gore, forget about it. Now, this is the Roger Stone. If you just tuned in, Roger Stone Show, if you just tuned in, we're on WABC Radio. You can find us at 770 AM on the radio dial. So if you're in the greater New York, New Jersey, Connecticut area, hit your cell phone now. Let your friends and relatives know that they should tune in. Uh, And if they can't tune in, well, no matter where you are in the country, you can go to the WABCRadio.com website, and you can hear this program now live, or you'll be able to hear it later or play it later for your friends. That is, assuming you enjoy it. The new DEP rules comply with Local 38 of 215 uh, regulations approved by the worst mayor in New York history, Mayor Bill de Blasio, although Eric Adams is certainly giving me a run for his money, uh, who was widely mocked after he was pictured abhorrently eating a slice of pizza with a fork and knife. Bill de Blasio, most definitely not Italian. Definitely not someone eligible to make any decisions on pizza, let alone the city, in, uh, the city itself. De Blasio should be more concerned with addressing the millions of dollars that disappeared uh, without a trace, uh, seemingly into his wife's coffers. But fortunately, he is no longer with us. But his proposed regulations that would ruin the pizza industry, well, they're still with us. Why all of a sudden are we discriminating against pizza, let alone the ovens that transform these perfect pies? If you look back in history, the first pizza joints in New York and in the United States used coal-fired ovens, which was cheaper than wood. 
Stainless steel pizza ovens entered the picture in the 1940s thanks to the emergence of natural gas and other few new restaurants that came online then used coal or wood ovens. One pizzeria using such ovens includes Lombardi's. This is the oldest pizzeria in America. In 1905, they opened their doors. Uh, we're going to have Gilbert Soto, who runs Lombardi's, join us a little bit to talk about that venerable institution. Uh, John's of Bleecker Street, uh, which I referred to earlier, has been in business at the same location for over a century, including since 1929 at its current location. Says in its website, I looked it up this morning, hallmarks of our pizza are the coal-fired brick ovens that churn out hundreds of crispy pies every single day. Wood-burning ovens, on the other hand, create a distinct pizza and have simply unmatched flavor. New York City wood-fired pizzerias are torching the Democratic-run city, stating there's no, there are more important things to worry about uh, than New York's rules to curb carbon emissions, which could cost New York City pizzerias tens of thousands of dollars and change the New York City slice for the better. Fox News Digital recently reported that the cost for a New York City's pizzeria to reduce carbon emissions from coal or wood-fired ovens could be anywhere from $20,000 to $25,000. Air filters, which could control the emissions, could cost pizzas up to $20,000 depending on the condition and size of their existing oven. Paulie G's pizzeria owner, Paul Gianone, expects to pay more than due to that due to installations and regular maintenance costs. There are other places that don't need to do that, I heard Mayor Adams say that this is the same smoke that's coming from the Canadian fires. Well, that's like saying a drop of water is like the same as a Category 5 hurricane. Maybe we should ban water next. We have customers that are miners that come from all over Pennsylvania to buy New York pizza, and they thank us, one, one proprietor told me, for using the coal. You see, coal supports a lot of people. It makes jobs. It builds the country. Do we need to be concerned about the air? Yes, we do. But we also have to be concerned that New York City remains the greatest pizza mecca in the world. Joining us uh, shortly uh, will be Bill Spector. Bill Spector is a, an entrepreneur, uh, a, uh, as a, a veteran of decades in the hospitality industry. He's an entrepreneur. He is the man behind some of the most famous nightlife and rescue restaurant venues in New York City history. But more importantly, Bill Spector is an aficionado of truly great pizza. We'll be right back.
is New York's talk leader, the crown jewel of talk radio. WABC New York and 1071 WLIR Hampton Bays. 77 WABC News starts now. 85 and partly cloudy at a Sunday, July 2nd. Good afternoon. I'm Yao Bonsu. Members of the Biden administration are sounding off on rulings made by the Supreme Court. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg says the same-sex ruling is a solution looking for a problem. Sending these kinds of things to the courts for the clear purpose of chipping away at the equality and the rights that have so recently been won. That was Buttigieg on CNN State of the Union today. The ruling allows businesses to ignore state laws against discrimination against people who identify as LGBTQ. Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez thinks the Supreme Court is not heading in the right direction. The Supreme Court is going themselves much too far. They are expanding their role into acting as though they are Congress itself. That was AOC on CNN State of the Union as well. She also pointed out Roe v. Wade being overturned as a prime example of the court having more power. Prepare to say bye-bye to the Excelsior Pass app. New York officials say the app has barely been used since 2021, but it's still costing $200,000 a month to maintain. The app was supposed to be updated to store other forms of ID, but that did not happen. The app will be decommissioned by July 28th. However, you can still access your information. New Yorkers are dealing with a swarm of bugs. They can be red, green, yellow, or black. The aphid bugs are small and can swarm around you from anywhere from a few days to a week. The warm temperatures and high humidity are probably why the bugs are attacking New York now instead of after the summer, where they can usually be found. Your forecast for the Ramsey Mazda Weather Center is going to be partly cloudy for the rest of the day. Expect cloudy skies overnight. WABC News Time is 401. I'm Yao Bonsu. Remember, the news never stops at WABC Radio. Richard Nixon. Well, I'm not a crook. Ronald Reagan. Tear down this wall. George W. Bush. I can hear you. The rest of the world hears you. And Donald Trump. Nobody knows the game better than I do. All of these presidents relied on one man to secure their seat in the Oval Office. That man is Roger Stone. This is the Roger Stone Show on 77 WABC. Welcome back. I'm Roger Stone, and we're deep in a discussion of a subject I feel very strongly about, and that is pizza. If you're just tuning in, we're talking about the decisions by woke New York City bureaucrats who, in a perfect world for them, would outlaw pizza ovens that are fueled by coal or wood for environmental issues. This would have the effect of threatening the uh, existence and survival of some of the greatest pizza places on the face of the planet. I'm talking about Luigi's Pizza, Tantano's, Joe's Pizza, Grimaldi's, Della Rocco's, Locali, which is modern but outstanding. We're talking about Defara out in Brooklyn, Ignazio's. These are places that are, that are temples of fine, fine pie. We're talking about the pizza wagon, Campania. Sadly, Lenny's Pizza has already shuttered their doors. We can't afford to, we cannot afford to lose these institutions, these emporiums of truly great pizza. And make no mistake about it, folks, they are being threatened right now. 
Bill Spector uh, is a uh, veteran of many decades in the hospitality industry. He is an empresario behind the scenes in some of the most successful nightlife and restaurant venues in New York City. Uh, he's an entrepreneur, uh, but I wanted to talk to him because, like me, he loves a good pizza, and he can bring a historical perspective to how we got to our current slice culture when it comes to pizza. Bill Spector, thank you for joining us on The Roger Stone Show. Hello. Thank you, Roger. Nice to meet you. Um, I see that your knowledge is pretty deep in the pizza. I love it. So uh, you, you made a very interesting point to me yesterday about uh, how the face of teacher of pizza has has changed uh, and how uh, the more modern methods of cooking, uh, electric, uh, gas, uh, which came after an earlier wave of coal and wood-fired pizzas, uh, has moved us to our current slice culture. Tell us about that. Yes, um, most of the coal oven and, and brick oven or the wood-fired oven places can't do, can't do, um, they can't make slices. They make only pies. And so the, the commercial deck ovens, when they came into play, much more slice culture started. And then some people now with the newer people are learning amalgamations. A couple of standouts that, that did both was Patsy's Uptown, which has a coal oven, and they sell slices. They're one of the few. And then you have new guys like Best Pizza who found an old, an old coal oven, and he makes his pies, then brings it out and puts it into a deck oven to crisp it up to serve slices. Uh, it's very interesting. Uh, I, this, I have read an enormous amount about a spot called Lucali. Uh, they have a they have a branch in Miami. Uh, it's virtually impossible, even in Miami, to get into. It's so popular. Uh, but uh, everybody raves about Lucali. Uh, it is, uh, as I'm told, uh, has a very very high end clientele. Has a a lot of uh, 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 celebrities, lawyers. Uh, big shots. Uh, what is the secret of Lucali? He he uses a he uses a wood fired oven. He may he uses the best ingredients. He puts a lot of love into the pizza. He's a man of the people, and um, and he's really studied the culture. He came from, you know, just wanting to do it as a as a hobby, turned it into a profession, and he's one of the best. So uh, here's a this is an opinion question. Yes. Be very careful about this. <laughs> Bill, in your opinion, does pineapple yes. belong on pizza? Um, never, unless you live in Hawaii and then, then still no. <laughs> I knew I liked you. <laughs> to me, this is, a cur uh, this is a cultural question. I mean, barbecue sauce does not belong on pizza. Barbecue chicken does not belong on pizza. Fruit does not belong on pizza. Vegetables, sure. Mushrooms, onions, green peppers, sausage. Now you're talking. A meatball, ricotta pie, there is nothing better in the entire world. What say you? I, I love them all, but I think a place is judged based on 
how good their plain pie is, whether you call it a plain pie, a cheese pie, a regular pie, whatever you whatever the name for it is, if that's great, they they've won the accolades of most people because that's the simplest yet the hardest thing to do. Yeah, I noticed that the Dave Portnoy of Barstool Sports, who is very famous for his pizza reviews. Now he's from Boston. Uh, the Regina's of the West End is it puts out a pretty good pie. But beyond that, I don't know what a non-Italian like Dave Portnoy would know about pizza. He came down here to Fort Lauderdale. He went to a place called Pizza at the Beach at Fort Lauderdale by the Sea, which is a Philadelphia-style slice to put you bready for me. But he didn't stop by directly across the street, Vinny's by the Sea, which turns out one of the best uh, uh, Nebeladon pies you're, you're going to find. Uh, I, I wish Mr. Rappaport success, but in all honesty, I don't think he knows a lot about pizza. I, I think that, you know, he has a very unique taste. He likes mostly the bar pie, which goes with your New Haven style. He likes very thin. He doesn't really like Naples style, but he also, you know, he's a Bostonian and he comes from the Boston thing. I come from New York where I judge a place based on their their slice and their plain pie, even though I like all the other iterations, sans pineapple, which we've, which we've decided that is terrible on it. Yeah, we have common ground on that, that's for sure. <laughs> now, I raised him because I think I do, one thing I do like about him is when he makes his, uh, when he does his reviews, when he makes his comparison, he always goes with the basic cheese pie. So I think it's a it's an apples to apples comparison. Uh, comparison. So therefore, uh, I, I liked it. Last week he said, apparently in New York City, some liberal arts Ivy League uh, liberal bureaucrat who's never worked in the real world is on an environmental commission, and they woke up from their little nap, uh, and they may say, I figured today's a good day to save the world. Uh, we have to get rid of coal oven and wood fired oven pizzerias in New York City. we got to stop the emissions because of the pollution. You said it best to me yesterday. Don't we have bigger problems than this? A hundred percent. I was in New York Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Wednesday, I walked through Washington Square Park. I couldn't walk through the park, my neighborhood growing up, because somebody was stabbed to death in the middle of the day. I got off the train in my train station, 2nd Avenue train station. There was three people slashed. I think that there's much bigger problems going on in the world of New York City and the world in general than to worry about 100 pizzerias, 200 pizzerias to cut down their emissions. I think that the politicians are really getting things wrong, what the real, what people really care about. Maybe there is a little problem with emissions. I don't think so, but maybe there is. But we can get to that number 100 on the list of 99 things in front of us that we should really worry about much more. Now, uh, I understand that you may be uh, planning to uh, to open your own pizza place uh, in uh, South Florida. So I want you to commit to us that when you do that, you will come back on the Roger Stone Show and tell us all about it and tell folks how they can check it out. Because our mutual friends tell me that you never do anything halfway, that everything you do has quality in it, that you have a that you're a that you're a tyrant when you comes to offering the public the very best. So when you open your doors in South Florida, I want to know about it. Not only will you know about it, I'll invite you to come and we'll do a show there. I love that. All right, Bill Spector, thank you so much for joining us. 
on the Roger Stone Show. Have a great, great 4th of July weekend. Thank you for having me, and God bless. So uh, there you have it, folks, a man who knows uh, the pizza industry inside and out. Uh, Now we're going to go to Gilbert Soto, uh, who who works at the oldest pizzeria uh, in America, established it in 1905. Uh, He is uh, based at 32 Spring Street. Uh, He told me yesterday that, that doing pizza in New York City is getting increasingly dangerous. Uh, But beyond uh, that location, Lombardi's, which is world famous famous, and to which I have gone, uh, there are many, many great pizzerias who are going to suffer for this current politically correct madness. Folks, first they came for our children. Now they're coming for our pizza. Uh, I'm talking about great places like Luigi's Pizza. If you ever heard of the Barstool Sports Presidente Dave Portnoy, who we spoke to earlier, uh, you've heard of Luigi's. If you've never seen Big Daddy, the classic movie starring Adam Sandler, you've also heard of Luigi's because that's the pizzeria in the movie. Both these reasons alone don't make for great pizza, but they do. Are they are kind of added bonuses to promote? some of the very best pizza in Brooklyn, maybe in all of New York City. The classic slices shine there, but they also have an absolute favorite of mine, the Sicilian-style pizza. Each time you go in, you're given some of the best slices, and most often the chef and owner himself will come out and greet you. This pizzeria has been in one family for decades, has continued to withstand the test of time, remains one of the best slices around. Better yet, as costs of food around the city seem to increase, Luigi's somehow keeps their prices low and the quality consistently high. Luigi's, you want to check it out. Joining us now is a man who's on the front line of the pizza war, Gilbert Soto of Lombardi's Pizza, joins us on the Roger Stone Show. Hi, how are you? Good afternoon. Gilbert, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I know that you work very hard to turn out some of the best pizza in America. Lombardi's is on Spring Street, 25 Spring Street, I believe. It is literally the first pizzeria to open in New York City. That was back in 1905. How do you deal uh, with the rising cost of ingredients? In other words, uh, we saw this in other pizzerias, some Very, very famous pizzerias that may or may not have been visited recently by Governor Ron DeSantis, the Florida Fugazi, have been accused of downgrading the quality of their ingredients, and the pie has suffered. How do you deal with the rising costs of tomatoes, of flour, of mozzarella? How do you deal with that? This this is what I can tell you, uh, Mr. We got... I started in the pizza business and restaurant business at Lombardi's 23 years ago. I'm doing this for seven days a week for the 23 years. And what I have learned and they told me since I walked in, the, in that family, because still family owned, was we do not play with the quality of the ingredients. Since COVID, a lot of businesses have suffered in New York, especially 
mom and pop store because, you know, it's just so far you can afford. With that being said, uh, pretty much, I don't want to say we're working for free, but none of the partners or none of the main people gets paid what needs to get paid. Just to try to hang on to the business, to try to keep it going. So I would say 30% of mom and pop restaurant that I knew for 15, 20 years, real mom and pop restaurant are out of business now. When I walk by the little Italy area and I look left and right, most of the people I knew for the last 15 years are gone. It's impossible, right? Impossible. You know, uh, I, I love Little Italy. It just seems to be getting smaller and smaller and smaller. I should say that if you're in Little Italy and you don't go by Cafe Palermo uh, to get uh, the cannoli from Baby John, the king of all cannoli, well, then you've missed the whole point uh, of Little Italy, in, in all honesty. Now, we were going to have a guy who calls himself Little Mo Mozzarella on the show. Uh, I was told he knows a lot about pizza. Several people recommended him. I invited him on the show, came back and told me that his agent decided that his appearance on the Roger Stone show was a bad idea. So he evidently just didn't want to talk to the roughly 2 million people who will be listening to the show between live and download to push his new line of gelatos, which, in all fairness, I have now tasted. This is just my personal opinion don't think they were that good. So instead, I want to thank Gilbert Soto for jumping into the void and joining us here. One of the other things, very sadly, that any pizza restaurant, particularly one on the corner like yours, has to worry about is the safety of the streets of New York City. Tell us about that. It's, it's tough when you, for so many years, in an area that was pretty much family. I used to love to come down with my wife and bring my kids to the area. So now with this, I don't want to scare people neither. Because let's be clear, I'm, I wasn't born in New York, but I consider myself, myself New Yorker for being here for so long, and this country has done so much for me. I'm the, I don't want to scare people, but it's different to walk in New York City. So we got so much that could be done right now on the safety of the New Yorker instead of being chasing down restaurants. they all we're trying to figure it out now is how to make a living after what just happened in the world with COVID. We still, I mentioned COVID because I'm still recovering for it. And now I have to worry about how to figure out how I'm going to use my oven. Actually, at one point, I say maybe we go a different route with a cold oven. And, and I shouldn't be saying that's America's first pizzeria, and that's all we know. It's the reason why we use coal. And we were debating and talking, maybe we're going to have to go a different route because we, we understand the environmental situation. But right now, I believe could be other ways. I don't know what to tell you, Roger, but the, the safety of New York is, is different. It's different. That's what I can tell you. Uh, so let me ask you this. Do you sell more slices or do you sell more pies? We we are in a stick to the old-fashioned traditional only pies, 
We don't we don't play even we are pies with different toppings. As of today, in the 23 years that I'm there, I'm not there since 1905. All right, I'm a little older, but not that far. Uh, we use just the simple ingredients. So we don't do a slice. We just do a regular pie. Uh, when people come to Lombardi's for first time and I ask them, oh, it's your first time because I'm on the floor most of the time, I suggest the margarita pizza or the just mozzarella because that's how you taste the real pizza. You salt and you dough is what makes you pizza. The mozzarella is important, but the first time just simple. So, yeah, we don't sell a slice. We pie only, and we still have the same recipes, unbelievable ingredients, and fresh. Uh, so what happens if somebody comes in and they ask for a pineapple on their pizza? At that moment, I say I don't have English. <laughs> no, definitely, definitely it's not what we do, Roger. We're a traditional Italian place. So I respect those places that they do sell chicken on the pizza, put pineapple on oh. the pizza, but that's not what I learned. And that doesn't go well when I taste the real traditional Italian sauce on the pizza. It doesn't go with, you know, pineapple with me. That, that's not just what I think. Yeah, if I was the pizzaiola and somebody came in and asked for pineapple, I'd give them the bum's rush. i got to be honest with you. And then you the, barbe- the barbecue chicken pizza, this is, this is an abomination, just an abomination. So, Gilbert, what will you do? If the city of New York uh, and the and the draconian jackbooted thugs in the environmental department come in and tell you you can't have a coal-fired oven anymore, I I don't know. We will have to talk about it. It's a lot to talk, but I I think you know Lombardis won't have an option by closing the door because as it is right now, we we're barely making it. You know, I think when I see the customer and they on the table. I say thank you for your support as of today. Because really, right now, anybody that goes and needs a Lombardi is a support for us to stay in business as is. So at that moment, I don't know how we can afford the maintenance of the system, the installation of the system, and plus the fines that we get on the, from the city for the, the outdoor seating because we're having problem with the health department when they come in for check and they find a flying in a restaurant and you pay a, you pay a fine for that and so on so forth. It's just so many expenses along with what they're going to be adding because your system something wasn't right or so one day I don't know how we stay in business. It's a lot to talk. I don't going to say we close our door, but at a certain point it's just so. So far, you can take it. Now, I don't want to uh, make you give uh, publicity to the competitors, but let's just say uh, on a given day uh, that Lombardi's was closed uh, and you uh, felt like having a pie. Where where would Gilbert Soto go? Who, who do you respect among the competition? Listen, when you're in this business for so long and you get to try pizza, it's a lot of great ones. I'd rather reserve the names, but it's a lot of great pizzas on the same family of Lombardi's. And all know, all of us, most of us know each other. Like example, Lucali in, in Brooklyn is a customer of us and a friend of us for many years. And we can go on and on from John's. And it, it's a family, you know. That that's the way the restaurant was built back in the day. You, you 
run out of tomato. You know, just go to Lombardi's and tell Gilbert to send me a case or two. I send it to them tomorrow. So we all friends and we all follow the same heart. It's just tough to see them going out of business because the real traditional, in my case, Italian restaurants are going out of business. Where can you get a great chicken parmesan sandwich like little Charlie used to do back in the day? So yeah, that's no, no, I think uh, I think it's going to take unity uh, to uh, to convince these bureaucrats to back off. I mean, the idea that shutting down I, I'm told, actually, at this point, less than 100 coal and wood-fired ovens turning out great pizzas in New York City is really going to have a substantially beneficial benefit uh, on, the, uh, on the air quality in New York City uh, is a joke. It's just like anything else. They're trying to, uh, they're trying to destroy everything the American people love, everything. I myself was always a great fan of Defara, uh, out you know in Brooklyn. Uh, they they opened their doors in 1965. Domenico DeMarco or Dom as he was known, came from to Brooklyn from the province of Caserta in Italy. Uh, I always thought Defara Pizza was among the very best, uh, and I have to mention it because it's one of my all-time favorites. It was closed for a little while. It opened back up. Uh, very, very good. Uh, I also liked Campania, uh, Campania, which, uh, as uh, people know, more of authentic Southern Italian cuisine, but also still has an emphasis on coal-fired pizzas as well as great pastas. Uh, I, I, the problem here is that I can't name all of my favorites. There are so many. And uh, when I went to New York City, which is very, very... Uh, less seldom uh, than it was, far less seldom uh, than it was, I should say, uh, because of the safety questions of the city. Um, I, I do like to try other places. I spoke earlier of Arturo's, uh, which is uh, uh, one of the old coal oven spots. I uh, had many great dinners there with my wife. Uh, I did get, uh, which I want to read for you, Gilbert, which I think you will enjoy uh, a poem that somebody sent in when they heard we were going to do this show. Uh, this is from my friend Lance Migliaccio, who is quite obviously not an Irishman. In the land of pizza once so grand, a battle brewed in New York's great land. The authorities declared with pompous air, no more brick ovens, it's only fair. But I, a pizza lover bold and true, stood against their decree through and through. With Boston Tea Party spirit anew, I vied to fight for the brick ovens due. A fiery passion burned within my core as I rallied the pizza warriors galore. We took to the streets with rebel cries, defending our pizza while reaching for the skies. In the heart of the city, we'll make our stand with brick ovens ablaze and flames fanned. Their law, a tasteless and bland decree, could never stifle our cry for pizza liberty. With each slice we devoured, we defied the powers and showed our power. The crunch of crust, the cheesy delight, would not succumb to this bureaucratic fight. As the authorities watched, 
their faces pale. Our rebellion grew. We would not fail. But like the brave souls of old, we fought for our rights, fierce and bold. We raised our pizza paddles high, shouting, we will not let our style of pizza die. With each defiant bite we took, we challenged the status quo we shook. In the end, our efforts will not be in vain. For the ban on brick ovens, it will wane. The authorities will bow to our pizza might, acknowledging our love in this fiery fight. So let it be known throughout the land that in New York City, great pizza will stand. No decree shall silence our sizzling art as we celebrate pizza from the start. For we the rebels of the Pizza Brigade embody the spirit of those who forbade unjust rules upon our beloved tea, and in our fight, we will set great pizza free. How'd you like that? Oh, pretty, good. pretty good. I hope we stand. I, I hope we, we stand, Roger. All right. Uh, I want to thank uh, Gilbert Soto for dropping by and telling us how difficult it is to uh, turn out a great pie for 23 years. He's been there. Uh, at Lombardi's. Uh, Gil, I want to thank you very much for joining us here on The Stone Zone. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And I just hope that not just the city, in general, anybody that has anything to do, understand what it takes to run a restaurant in New York City, to keep it afloat with the unemployment, with the tough that it is, with the city rules in general to understand these other things that are priority now and try to let us as a restaurant owners and managers to do what we love to do because it's very tough, right? All right. Many thanks, Gilbert Soto of Lombardi's Pizza for joining us on the Roger Stone Show. Thank you for spending a little time in the Sunday Stone Zone with us. An all American weekend. Richard Nixon. Well, I'm not a crook. Ronald Reagan. Tear down this wall. George W. Bush. I can hear you. The rest of the world hears you. And Donald Trump. And a friend of mine for a long time, he. Uh, only likes politics. If you ask him about how are the Yankees doing, he has no interest. If you ask him almost anything, he likes politics and he's a professional at the highest level. Roger Stone. All of these presidents relied on one man to secure their seat in the Oval Office. That man is Roger Stone. This is the Roger Stone Show on 77 WABC. If you're just tuning in, this is Roger Stone, and this is the Roger Stone Show here on WABC Radio. WABC Radio, making AM radio great again. So if you're listening to us, that means you can go to your cell phone right now, and if you're in the greater New York, New Jersey, Connecticut area, tell your friends or members of your family to tune in at 770 AM on their AM radio dial, and if your friends are out of town, tell them to go to WABCRadio.com. They can listen to this entire interview 
or they could even listen to the show after the fact. Uh, my next guest, uh, Alina Haba, is an American attorney specializing in civil cases. Uh, she represents President Donald Trump. Uh, she is, without any question, one of the most impressive, articulate, uh, and I think affected advocates I have ever seen in 40 years in the public arena. Uh, I particularly caught her interview, or I should say her comments, outside the courthouse in Miami on June 13th, the day President Trump was arraigned in the completely fabricated charges by special counsel Jack Smith. Here's what Alina Haba had to say that day. The people in charge of this country do not love America. They hate Donald Trump. What we are witnessing today is the blatant and unapologetic weaponization of the criminal justice system. The Biden appointed special counsel has sought fit to bring 37 federal charges against President Trump, the leading front runner, less than a year and a half before an election. Countless other individuals, Hillary Clinton, Joe Biden himself, retained possession of classified documents yet have not been prosecuted. And none of them came into possession of those documents while they were president. None of them were president who, as the head and sole member of the executive branch, has the power to summarily declassify documents. The decision to pursue charges against President Trump while turning a blind eye to others is an emblematic of the corruption that we have here. We are at a turning point in our nation's history. The targeting prosecution of a leading political opponent is the type of thing you see in dictatorships like Cuba and Venezuela. It is commonplace there for rival candidates to be prosecuted, persecuted, and put into jail. What is being done to the President Trump should terrify all citizens of this country. Alina Haba, welcome to The Roger Stone Show. Thank you. So happy to be on. Thank you for having me. Delighted that you could make it. Now, I know that you spoke to your client, uh, President Donald Trump, late last week, and I understand it would be inappropriate for you to tell us about substance of those conversations. But let me ask you this. How is the president's mood? How is his demeanor? He was great. I was with him actually this morning. Um, he's he's doing fantastic uh, out there, living his life, focusing on 2024, keeping his eye on the ball as usual, um, and resilient. You know, I always use that word with him. He's just resilient. He's a force of nature, as you know, Roger. Uh, I had him on this show, uh, I guess now three weeks ago. Uh, I was hoping for 15 minutes. I was praying for maybe 20. He surprised me, <laughs> stayed for essentially for the entire hour. Uh, and I still can't get over how calm, cool, collected, determined, uh, resilient he was. I mean, this happened between the time that he was charged and the time he was arraigned. Uh, he was relaxed. He was talkative. 
Uh, he's very, very determined. Uh, and he feels confident that the American people see through this ocean of lawfare that has been waged against him. Uh, we just played your comments uh, on June 13th, so we know exactly what you think of the initial charges filed against him in Miami. Uh, it's kind of interesting that that uh, critics such as Andrew Weissman, the former federal prosecutor and the de facto head of the Mueller witch hunt, and others have been predicting for weeks that in a belt and suspenders approach uh, to their attacks on Donald Trump, that they intend to file uh, additional charges against him in other jurisdictions, largely, I think, because they're concerned that in Florida, he may actually get a fair trial in front of an open-minded judge. And then today, we get hit by the news uh, that is clearly leaked that they're anticipating 45 additional counts most likely to be filed uh, in New Jersey because of alleged infractions that took place in Bedminster. Your reaction to this news? Uh, more of the same. Um, I think you could hear my outrage in that clip that you played from uh, Miami outside the courthouse. I, uh, I'm not President Trump's advocate. I'm, I'm an advocate for America. So when I hear things like this, when I see the rapid um, progression, the crooked corruption out of Washington, it's so sad to me, um, truly. I mean, the anger comes from a deep sadness that our country has effectively fallen into the same pattern of third world banana republics. And it's sickening. You know, if, Roger, have you ever seen anybody who's out of office, and all of a sudden he says he's running for election, and all of a sudden there are how many indictments, investigations? I mean, he always jokes and says, I fly over a state and I'll get an indictment or I'll get a, an investigation. It, it's not right. And you and I know him. We know what a good person he is. We know how much he loves the country. But it is really frightening for the American people. And the fact that they're not stopping and they're so desperate and that's really what it is, desperation, that they cannot and will not be able to beat him unless they play dirty, is pathetic. It's pathetic, it's frightening, and it's what makes me wake up every day. So I, I just keep going. You know, I just like you, you know, we get out there and we fight, and that's what he does. Yeah, I, I'm, in, I'm in agreement. Uh, he poses an existential threat to the two-party duopoly that is bringing the country to its knees. They recognize that they can't beat him in a free, fair, honest, transparent election. That's not what we had in this country in the last election, in my opinion. Uh, and the fact that as they attack him, it's entirely counterintuitive. In other words, the more they attack him, the more they seek to smear him, the more they seek to dirty him up, the stronger he gets with the American people the larger right. his lead over Joe Biden grows in credible polls, the larger his lead now, you know, hefty double digits, or as the president said, I'm leading by a lot, as he would say, mm -hmm. uh, over Governor Ron DeSantis. Uh, it is having the exact opposite effect of what they of what they desire. They just don't understand 
Donald Trump is a man who thrives on controversy, who excels in crisis, who is best at his best when he's under pressure. That's the Trump I've known for 44 years. Uh, And they have they've really awakened a giant here. In other words, he completely understands that all of this lawfare is politically motivated and it's not going to slow him down. If anything, in a strange way, it energizes him. It does. And his base, Roger, and his base, because and never mind the base. You know what it's done? People that have come up to me and said, I was not a fan of Donald Trump before. He is too brash. He is whatever it is, right? I didn't like the mean tweets, whatever. But then Biden came, and I saw how destructive the radical left can be. And I can't stand for it. And I think the only one that can fix it is Trump. So now I'm Trump. And the reason they're pro-Trump is because he's not bought by anything. He's not bought by anyone. He has no incentive to be doing this. It's actually, in my opinion, I think generally everybody can say ruined his life to some extent, his personal life. I mean, the man is under a tremendous amount of pressure and he thrives and his base and now the undecided are thriving and are moving towards President Trump for 2024. And I'm not really clear on why they keep pounding him, because it's clearly, like you said, it's clearly not working. So I don't know what news they're watching. Maybe they need to turn off MSDNC or whatever it is. But they're they're not getting the right information because it's actually charging people up. So, uh, you know, God only knows what's coming down the pipe. You know, I, I would love to say that we'll be surprised, but we won't. Um, but I can tell you that it's frightening American people, and it's actually doing the opposite, like you said, of their intent. It's doing the opposite. Uh, in 2022, uh, Alina Haba brought a lawsuit in the Southern District of Florida uh, against mm-hmm. uh, Hillary Clinton, John Podesta, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, uh, Congresswoman Debbie Wasserman Schultz, every man's first wife. Uh, and <laughs> if you go read the pleadings in this suit, everything you think you learned in the Durham report is essentially contained in this lawsuit, which Alina filed on behalf of the president. Uh, it, it's a landmark suit, not because it was ultimately heard. Sadly, the suit was dismissed by a Clinton-appointed judge. Uh, I think uh, uh, incorrectly, but it's important because it laid out there in the public record pre-Durham that the Russian collusion hoax was the largest single dirty trick in the history of American politics. It was an abuse of power in which the full authority of the United States government and the extraordinary capabilities of our intelligence agencies were weaponized without due process and without any evidence to justify uh, an effort that was both illegal and illicit to stage a coup uh, and remove a sitting, duly elected American president. What amazes me the most about this, and and Lee, I'm going to ask you about this, is timing. It was only weeks ago that the special counsel, Jack Smith, charged President Donald Trump And then they wanted to move, initially at least, to a trial just weeks from now 
in August. Why does it take John Durham five years plus to get to the bottom of the baseless Russian collusion hoax in which the government opened the counterintelligence operation Crossfire Hurricane, the government appointed a special counsel, Robert Mueller, the government falsified their claims to the FISA court in order to spy on Donald Trump and his campaign, all without probable cause, all without any evidence of Russian collusion. But but Mr. Durham took five years to reach that conclusion, yet Jack Smith is ready to take Donald Trump to trial just uh, essentially less than two months after he was charged. How is this possible? Right. Um, it's the same thing we've been talking about. It, it's just clear. And I'm so happy you brought up my suit because people actually forgot I did that. And it was, you know, something that people thought would tarnish my reputation. And now I feel almost vindicated. You know, when Durham came out and said basically, not basically, everything I had in that suit was valid. Everything. And I didn't even meet that judge. Not one time. Not one time. It was dismissed. I was sanctioned, um, ridiculed. There was a scathing opinion about how I have no right to speak at rallies and shouldn't speak on press. I'm, I'm effectively too good of an advocate, and he didn't like it. And it was a very damning experience. However, I have to say it, it's now one of my most pri- proud things I've done because it's exactly what you're saying. It's when you fight people that are politically connected, you're not supposed to have that kind of corruption, that kind of thing seep into the system, and it's what's seeping in. And the fact that Donald Trump cannot get a fair day in court for something that we now know actually happened, Russiagate, we know this, we've known this, but it doesn't matter what happens, Hunter Biden will only get probation and, uh, and two misdemeanor charges, but Donald Trump will get indicted in a public trial as fast as humanly possible to affect the election. And he always says it, and I, I do believe what he's saying is accurate. I was not part of politics in 2020. I was not any different than any other person listening to the station. But they, it is meddling. It is, it is absolutely lawfare and using the court system to try and influence American people's judgment with headlines that are inaccurate. You know, they're just inaccurate. It's, it's false reporting. It starts with journalism. It comes out of a ton of different places, and we really need a serious cleanup. It's, it's uh, very scary. Uh, an, another very important victory by Alina Haba on behalf of President Donald Trump when Trump's former attorney, Michael Cohn, filed a civil lawsuit uh, against the former president. Uh, Alina Haba handled that defense on behalf of the president, and that case was summarily dismissed on November 14th of 2022 uh, in its entirety. Another important legal victory. So Alina Haba is a warrior. She is a fighter. She, like me, we're, we're loyalists to Donald Trump. We admit it. We make no bones <laughs> about it. Uh, what did you, It is amazing to me that in the same week in which J- Congressman Jason Smith uh, outlines an entire uh, – regimen of cover-up and potentially the perjury of the U.S. Attorney General who claims that he had not interfered in any way in the investigation into Hunter Biden, yet Congressman Smith produced actual documentation of the fact that the U.S. Attorney uh, in Delaware was hamstrung in terms of bringing charges and 
D.C., hamstrung in terms of bringing charges in California, uh, refused special counsel status, uh, that IRS, the IRS was stymied in their investigations into Hunter Biden. So in order to distract from that, somebody, can't imagine who this was, somebody leaks to CNN an audio tape in which the president is talking about his decision to stop the country from moving towards World War III. In other words, the president is discussing a document, allegedly, a document, by the way, that special counsel Jack Smith cannot produce, so clearly not among those documents seized at Mar-a-Lago, in which the president rejected a plan to go to war in, in, in Iran proposed by the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, General Mark Milley. Uh, so in other words, let me get this straight. Donald Trump kept us out of another endless foreign war, and for that, he must be prosecuted. How coincidental that that, that, that that would leak at the same time this devastating news of corruption, extortion, uh, uh, money laundering, illegal lobbying. Let's face it. Let's just say it. Treason by the Biden crime family is in the news. Right. And where are the indictments? Where are their indictments? Where are they? I want to understand how that's not happening. But you know why? Because they don't even bring it in front of a grand jury. They would never even allow the American people the right to judge whether this was or was not corrupt, whether this was or was not against the law, which it blatantly was. I think we have information now that it's over, what, 30, 40 million in bribes that they can trace through that whistleblower. And God bless these whistleblowers, Roger, because these whistleblowers who are just normal American citizens are taking a major risk and coming out and saying, I know this. And every time the press will just distract you and tell you that a submarine is underground and has 70 hours left, 50 hours left. Meanwhile, they knew that submarine was gone. You know, it's distraction after distraction after distraction. And it's, it's obvious, it's pathetic, and it's desperate. It has to stop. I want to see why Hunter Biden was given such a low—if that was Don Jr., Roger, if that was Don Jr., if that was Eric Trump, if that was Ivanka Trump, Tell me that they wouldn't be in jail for the things that he did, no, and quickly. No, I, th- I think I think you're right on the money. Uh, then the uh, kind of moving to wrap this up, but we have news that has leaked that uh, former Mayor Rudy Giuliani uh, was uh, was offered a proffer uh, by prosecutors in D.C. This seems to indicate uh, that the special counsel is considering charges uh, in the District of Columbia presumably in relation to uh, the some of the actions of January 6th, specifically pertaining uh, to uh, the challenge to the certification of the election uh, and an effort to send some electors in the questions in the states where there were election discrepancies and, uh, and anomalies back to the legislatures for reexamination. Uh, do you expect there to be charges filed against the president, perhaps others, uh, in the in the District of Columbia. Well, unfortunately, if you listen to the leaks, which are many, and which always seem to be right, it's like they're not ready, but they want to leak it just to screw. You know, I don't know, screw up the Fourth of July weekend. I don't even know. But the fact that they even do that, you know, I have to say that if you hear a leak, maybe it comes to fruition. But I can also say that I've heard leaks that are intended to scare people, 
I know that there's been leaks to clients that I represent that are not um, directly related, not Donald Trump directly, but people in that world. And the leaks come out, and I get calls from the press, and then nothing happens. And it's more just an intimidation factor. Um, we know that Georgia and these these claims, you know, J6 and and all of that, we know that that's been something they've been working up. And again, it's uh, I hate to use this word, you know, it's used a lot, but it's accurate. It's witch hunt. It's a witch hunt. Um, and, and I don't have a reason to believe it's not true. Obviously, I don't have any personal knowledge of it because they would never call us first. <laughs> God forbid. But, um, you know, what you're hearing is what I'm hearing. And, and I hope it's not true, but I wouldn't put it past them. Uh, I think I think sadly you are uh, you are uh, absolutely right. Look, if you want to know what uh, what Special Counsel Jack Smith is going to do, just read Andrew Weissman's tw- Twitter feed, uh, and he he will usually uh, telegraph the punch. Uh, it, it is really quite extraordinary the fear that they have of Donald Trump. They just they know that he cannot be defeated in an election, so they seek to disqualify him. Yet all of their actions as I said earlier, seem to just make him extraordinarily stronger. Uh, Alina Habba, I want to thank you for taking time on this pre-4th of July weekend, for joining us here on The Roger Stone Show. Uh, I know you will continue as a tireless advocate uh, for the president. I do find it shocking that Judge Middleton uh, didn't like your speaking out at rallies, but the fact that the judge in the business records case in New York City gave a campaign contribution to Joe Biden, that's perfectly all right. That's not a problem. No, not a problem. Not a problem at all, I guess. Only if you're on the Trump side is it a problem. But um, it's all right. doesn't matter. Like you said, we're zealous advocates, and, and you know I'll keep fighting for him. So, so we're, we're, we're out there together. But thank you for having me, Roger. I appreciate it. Alina, thank you, and, and have a wonderful, wonderful holiday. Uh, and uh, my best regards to your family. And again, Thank you for joining us on The Roger Stone Show. Richard Nixon. Well, I'm not a crook. Ronald Reagan. Tear down this wall. George W. Bush. I can hear you. The rest of the world hears you. And Donald Trump. And a friend of mine for a long time, he uh, only likes politics. If you ask him about how are the Yankees doing, he has no interest. If you ask him almost anything, he likes politics and he's a professional at the highest level Roger Stone. All of these presidents relied on one man to secure their seat in the Oval Office. That man is Roger Stone. This is The Roger Stone Show on 77 WABC. All right, I want to thank uh, Alina Haba, the president's lawyer, one of the most effective of his lawyers, uh, for joining us on The Roger Stone Show. I can't even begin to tell you how upset I am about Eric Adams' administration war on pizza. So many great pizza places I wanted to talk about today, I just didn't get time to. Uh, Spumoni Gardens, uh, for example, uh, uh, Joe's Pizza uh, uh, out in Williamsburg, uh, the Pizza Wagon. Uh, in uh, uh, there's, there's just so many great places I just didn't get to. As I mentioned earlier, Lenny's Pizza. Sadly closed last year. It's worth mentioning this because this was the Brooklyn Pizzeria. You'd be familiar with it because it was featured uh, in the film Saturday Night Fever. Famous scene where Tony Manero, played by John Travolta, ordering the double-decker 
Those are two slices stacked on top of each other and eating them while strutting down 86th Street. It shows you how fleeting it is, folks. It shows you how quickly the great pizza institutions, the entire tradition of New York coal and wood-fired pizza can be ripped from us, from us by faithless, woke bureaucrats. Strongly, I would urge Governor, uh, pardon me, Mayor Eric Adams, instead of insulting with racial slurs an 84-year-old Holocaust survivor, uh, instead of moving to seal his disciplinary records as a police officer, uh, and still, uh, instead of his department harassing my good friend, Officer Salvatore Greco, a 14-year veteran of the New York City Police Department with an unblemished record of public service to the American people, uh, who has been terminated from that job for consorting with people who, under New York regulations, may, may or may not have been organized with crime, at the same time, the mayor is appointing an acting police commissioner whose brother is a known gangster and whose associates are currently under investigation. So, uh, Mayor Adams, instead of insulting the people who voted for you, I noticed when some guy threw pizza uh, at Gracie Mansion, the mayor is quoted saying, don't be throwing pizza over my gate. Eric, it's not your gate. You work for that 84-year-old lady that you insulted with a racial slur. Completely uncalled for. So I hope he will back off his assault on great New York pizza. Uh, I think he's going to be under oath very soon in the Salvatore Greco case. And we're going to find out more about the epic corruption of the best-dressed mayor since Jimmy Walker perhaps the worst mayor since Bill de Blasio. Back off our pizza, Mr. Mayor. That's my simple message for you. Folks, if you enjoy what we're doing here on the Roger Stone Show, I urge you to drop by my website. It's at stonezone.com, stonezone.com. You can get a copy of my New York Times best-selling book, The Man Who Killed Kennedy, The Case Against LBJ. You can pick up your own uh, iconic Roger Stone Did Nothing Wrong t-shirt. Uh, you can pick up uh, a copy of my book, The Myth of Russian Collusion, uh, where in 2019 I told you everything that was in Robert Durham's report. I want to thank the staff at WABC for making this show easy to do. Uh, I want to thank John Katsimatidis for leading the fight to save AM radio. Folks, if you don't know this, big car manufacturers, Ford uh, and others, talking about not having AM receivers in their next generation of vehicles. That includes Tesla. John Katsimatidis is leading the fight for AM Ameri uh, radio in America, which is an important source of alternative viewpoints and where the national emergency broadcast system uh, is based. Thank you very much for joining me on the Roger Stone Show. Uh, I want to remind you again, uh, you can listen at 770 on the dial if you're fortunate enough to live in the New York, New Jersey, Connecticut area. But in the meantime, go to WABCradio.com. Tell your friends about this show, particularly if they love great pizza. Until next Sunday at 3, 
God bless you and Godspeed.